What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Day 3 podcast brought to you by Team Collective Effort. My name is Dalton Grimes. Joining me today are Brian. Hello. And Marcos. Hello. And today we are going to be talking about the deck. And by that, I mean what to do when there is a best deck in the format. Is it best to try to play it? to try to beat it, to try to ignore it and hope it goes away. Well, that's what we're going to try to find out today. So if someone could help me figure out, how do we determine what the best deck in a format is? How can we figure out which is the deck? Well, I mean, you have to figure out even if there is a best deck for starters. Sometimes you look at a format and see, well, there's 10 different decks that have done really well over the last 10 events. It's safe to say at that point, there's no one deck to beat. Uh, However, when you look at other formats, uh, maybe you look at modern right now, and you look at the numbers that... Uh, Phoenix variants, the blue-red and the mono-red variants are putting up, and you say, hey, that's been doing pretty well. You might be willing to point at that and say, that is the deck that it's it's maybe not the best deck, but it's one of the best decks, and I should try playing it, or I should at least consider maybe changing up my game plan a little bit to be able to beat that deck. Sure. So... Ways that we can look at determining that deck is seeing what kind of results they're putting up. So what's important to keep in mind is that when you are looking at the results of how a deck finishes, it's also important to look at the prevalence of that deck as it finishes. So for example, one of the decks we're going to talk about a lot today is Arclight Phoenix. The blue-red version of the deck, and to some extent the mono-red version, have put up incredibly consistent results in Modern ever since Ross Miriam broke that deck out and played it at his first event with it. So in the most recent Star City Games Open, which is the event that we have statistics for, there were five copies of the deck in one of those two variants in the top 16 of the event. And my amateur math is telling me that that is 31% of the top 16. Can confirm. Which sounds like quite a bit for a single deck to be represented in such a high place in that tournament. But as I mentioned, we can't just look at one number. There are a couple other numbers we have to factor in. And the other number is the prevalence of the deck in the tournament. So, for example, if 30% of the players in the tournament showed up with a Phoenix variant, then it wouldn't be surprising that 30% of the top 16 or 30% of the top 8 end up as that deck. That's just scaling those statistics down. But Blue-Red Phoenix only accounted, or rather Phoenix Variants, only accounted for 8.5% of the decks in the tournament. So we had 8.5% show up to the event with it, yet when we get to one of the most prestigious locations, the top 16 of the event, we see five copies, we see 31% of that top field is on the deck. So as Brian mentioned, that's a pretty good metric we can use to determine that that deck 
is putting up results and is definitely a contender to be the deck of the format. For comparison's sake, uh, the next most represented deck in that top 16 is Humans with three copies throughout the top 16, uh, coming to roughly what? Less than 20%? 20%. Yeah, less than 20% of the field. Uh, big difference there. Yeah. And so what's important to keep in mind with that is that obviously you have decks that have better pilots. You know, just because there are multiple copies in a deck there doesn't necessarily mean that that deck is the one to beat. It could just mean that the players who are working it are well-known, very talented, um, very dedicated players in a format. And in this case, you can see that there is a variety of different players working these decks who are in charge and commanding the tournament. So other examples that you can see, or could be contenders to be considered the deck in modern right now, you're seeing things like Humans, which has been a very strong, solid deck in the format since it broke out in Star City Games Open Cincinnati in 2017. We see Dredge, which has been revitalized with the inclusion of Creeping Chill, thanks to Guilds of Ravnica. And then we're also seeing Tron come out as a pretty consistent solid deck in the format, thanks to the fun lock that is Karn the Great Creator and Micah Synth Lattice. So each of these things takes a pretty unique approach to the game to do quote-unquote unfair things. You're either completely locking your opponent out of casting spells, or you're trying to interact with your opponent's cards in a way that hardly makes sense, or just taking advantage of the fact that magic has a graveyard, and oh my gosh, you didn't do something about it. <laughs> so theoretically, any one of these could be considered the boogeyman of the format, the deck that you are trying to beat, that you are trying to overcome, or that you're trying to play. So I guess it comes to the question of, should you play that deck? Now, Marcos, you have been on Amulet Titan for quite a while. And I know you mm -hmm. took a break after, what was it, Summer Bloom got banned? Yep. But you are back at it, which is good. Amulet Titan has put up some consistent results and has seen multiple top eight and even a few successful finishes in different events. So, Marcos, why don't you talk about being able to play that deck? Because you can't just show up with 75 cards and win. I, I only wish it were that easy. If only. Uh, yeah, so the whole concept of can you play the deck definitely comes into play more when you're talking about decks that have way more intricate lines of play. Um, these are typically going to be overall more powerful decks just in the raw power level when you look at them because there's so much complexity and so much interplay between your different lines of play uh, different decisions that you can make at any given time and how you can really tailor your strategy to beat any given matchup. Now, if you don't want to invest the time into learning what those lines of play are, what those decisions are that you're going to have to make, what some of those kinds of uh, lines and decision trees that you have to go down are going to be, then you should really reconsider whether you want to play that deck, even if it ends up being the best deck in the format. Um, an old example of this is back when Birthing Pod was still legal and modern. Uh, you had basically flowcharts of which cards are you Birthing Podding for, 
and how intricate that can go based off of effectively making your entire deck a toolbox deck to answer literally anything. But if you didn't know what to search out at what time, then you weren't really doing well with the deck. So you really have to invest into making sure you understand what lines you want to take, what options are available to you at any given time, as opposed to just going on autopilot and saying, okay, do whatever I this deck does, smash. Yeah, so you'll see things like burn is a very straightforward game plan is you are going to knock your opponent's life total to zero as fast as you can and that's not to say there's not some lines of play that you have to consider is you know is it too early to cast path to exile on this creature or should i wait until they attack should i use this lightning bolt to deal three damage to their pace face and put them lethal to a boros charm or is it better to eliminate their threat now and hope that they can't murder me with Infect next turn. It's not to say that these decks don't have lines that you can consider, but when you are playing the jigsaw puzzle that is Amulet Titan, and even just finding lands to play in a turn is a decision, mm -hmm. that takes a lot more work. For myself with my Naya aggro deck, pretty much I'm just grabbing a land that can cast the thing that's currently in my hand. Whereas something like Amulet Titan... I'm sure that half the time you're fetching lands that you hardly need right now because yeah. you know that you're going to need them in the next turn. Right. Or specifically looking for the lands that instead of giving me one attacker that I can attack for 16 with this turn or 20 with this turn, instead hedge my bets against the potential of them having a removal spell and search up a secondary Titan if I have a second amulet to be able to attack for 32 this turn which I can still survive if they end up pathing one of my Titans or whatever it might be. Things like that are tough. <laughs> yeah, so there's a big matter of whether or not you feel confident playing the deck. But then there's also the aspect of, can you actually get the deck? So Brian, I know that for a long time, you've been on a blue-red Delver thing in the ice deck, and you've never quite moved towards a blue-red Phoenix build. What was holding you back for so long? Or, or what keeps holding you back? So to be perfectly honest, uh, I was frankly afraid of showing up with this fantastic tier one super powerful deck and making a fool of myself by going one and three. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, but really, Arclight Phoenix was really expensive for a long time. It's come down since it got reprinted in the Challenger decks mm -hmm. to something a lot more reasonable now. And I bit the bullet and decided to pick up my four copies and I'm going to sleeve it up and give it a go on Friday. And we're going to see how it goes. Nice. Yeah, that that's definitely a big one. And I know I've faced that struggle before as well. For playing my deck, it took me three and a half years to swap out my Vexing Devils for Goblin Guides. Because I just <laughs> kept telling myself, oh, Goblin Guide's an important card. It'll be reprinted soon. And then it got reprinted in, I believe it was Modern Masters 17. And mm -hmm. I decided, oh, well, I guess I really don't need Goblin Guides right now. I'm, I'm sure it'll get printed again. That's fine. And then it became a promo. I was like, well, the promo is pretty cool. Maybe I'll just wait for the price of that foil to drop. Because I know I'm going to want a foil anyways, so I'll just go ahead and get that one when it comes down. And then it never did. And so finally <laughs> I was like, well, <clears throat> I was going to buy this when it was pretty cheap, but then that foil was there and I wanted it. But now they're both out of my price range, 
And, and it just took me so long to actually bite that bullet and purchase those cards, which in the grand scheme of things, I ended up trading things away for it anyways. It's not like it cost me any money out of pocket, but it was just the matter of, oh, well, I could get Goblin Guides, or I could get this thing for my other deck, which I need to play, because I'm doing fine right now with Faxing Devils. Ironically, if you would have got the Goblin Guides three and a half years ago, and that gives you maybe five more percentage points, you could probably turn the increased winnings into store credit to be able to afford those foils right now. Ooh. True story. That's a hot take. Hot financial spec. <laughs> so there's the matter of, can you pilot the deck? Do you have access to the deck? Do you know anyone that does have access to that deck? So for example, if I was really excited to play Blue Red Phoenix and I couldn't help but try it out and I was very excited to take it to an FNM, I said, hey, Brian, I know you can't make it this week. Would you feel comfortable loaning me that deck? Chances are, unless I pissed Brian off pretty recently, that he'll say, yeah, sure, <laughs> go for it. And so I have that network, that ability to pick up those cards. I don't have to go to the store and trade away my life savings to pick up this deck to give it a shot. I can contact someone I know, someone that I'm friends with, and be able to pick up those cards. Which, by the way, they were out of Phoenix's. No. <laughs> no. I, because I had I had like uh, seven or eight dollars in store credit. I'm like, oh, you know what? I used to discount for no. I had to go to TCG Player. <laughs> no. <laughs> like I'm finally gonna do it. Oh, that's an Admiral Beckett Brass. The bad beats. <laughs> and then there's the matter of, as Brian mentioned, is do you want to? And in, in your case, it sounds like you were totally fine playing your Delver thing in the ice. Oh, it was great because that's what you enjoy playing. And for you, it was a matter of, well, I really don't feel like I want to play Phoenix right now. Sure, it might have gotten you maybe a few win points, but you still had three, two flyers that you could attack with. And that was good enough. So yeah, actually, that goes in line with something that Reed Duke was talking about when he was talking about the Mythic Invitational. Uh, a lot of people were expecting him to bring a certain deck, uh, and he opted to go for the Mono Blue Tempo deck that he did, but he talked in, in an article that he wrote about it, and we'll include that in the show notes for sure, that a big part of playing a deck for him was also feeling comfortable with the deck. Uh, a lot of times people will expect him to bring a certain mid-rangey deck, but you know what? He feels like sometimes you have to feel more comfortable playing the deck to actually get those extra percentage points that the deck may give you. For example, if Mono Blue is giving you an extra 10% win rate, but you're not able to maximize that extra 10% because you don't feel as comfortable with the deck, it might be a better option for you to stick with the deck that you know, something like your Delvers, that you know you can still pilot well, get the most out of that, if you feel like you might lose some percentage by making the switch over to a different deck, which is kind of what Brian was mentioning earlier. So there's quite a few different ways that you might be able to acquire or might be drawn to a deck, is because you see it putting up results and you want to give it a shot, you see that you have easy access to it and you can pick it up and, you know, with pretty much no risk, pilot it at your Or you might see that, you know, it, it's just available to you and it's close enough to something that you already have that you really don't have to make much of a change. And so you figure, well, why not? Maybe it's worth it. But then that begets the question of what to do when you can't pick up that deck. If I decide that Dredge is the deck in the format right now. It won the SCG Open in Louisville. 
Oliver Tomiko did a great job with it. I think I want to play that. I'm pretty certain the only cards that I own to build Dredge right now are Stomping Grounds and Faithless Lootings. And as good as I am at math, I'm pretty certain that that leads me 67 cards short. <laughs> yep. It's just, they probably don't even run fourth Stomping Grounds. They probably don't. They 68, run... 69 cards short? I don't know. Nice. Yeah, so... <laughs> If that's the case, then then what is my strategy? How am I able to find success at my FNM, find success at my MCQ, find success at my SCG Invitational Qualifier if I can't pick up that deck? I mean, you've got what? Uh, you're on a Naya, so you've got white. Run some mainboard resting pieces. <laughs> I know it's kind of a little bit against your strategy. Lean into the fact that there is a best deck, or there's a couple best decks out there that rely so heavily on the graveyard. You know, really hose them. There's definitely that option to lean into it. Is if I look and I see what are those four decks that I expect to see at this FNM, or at this Invitational Qualifier. I expect Tron. Tron is never going away. I expect Humans. It is never going away. And then we have Phoenix and Dredge, which, depending on you know, how Sideboard Hate's doing in the format. We may see and we may may miss. But if I have a good feeling that those two decks are going to represent, I can lean in and I can dedicate Sideboard spots or even potential Mainboard spots to something that I can do to help my game against those decks. So yeah, Rest in Peace is a great example. I'm pretty certain that you would be hard-pressed to find a single deck that runs white that does not have Rest in Peace in their Sideboard. Unless they are also doing dumb graveyard shenanigans. Perfect example of this is the most recent Mythic Invitational that was modern that ended up having Surgical Extraction be one of the most represented cards in the metagame because so many people were running graveyard strategies. Dredge was so big. Phoenix was so big that people were running Surgical Extraction in the main boards. Uh, there were Phoenix decks that were running Surgicals in the main board because, A, it's a free spell, so it still helps them, and it helps them get rid of any kind of opposing graveyard shenanigans. Yeah, that's a great point. Is For some decks, it might seem a little awkward to have that spell that you're running that it really doesn't match your game plan. It's It, it seems a little bit off, but for something like Phoenix, if you can find a spell that fits in with the theme of your deck... Uh, Surgical Extraction can remove a counter from your thing in the ice. It can be another spell that you can cast for no mana that can help you get back a bird. And being able to find something that leans into your game plan seems great. I know that, you know, there's a lot of utility creatures that you can find in formats that, you know, maybe you weren't looking for something like a Torpor Orb in your deck because you really don't have the ability to deal with artifacts too well or you don't want to have leave yourself susceptible to artifact hate, but maybe you want to have something like uh, Takatli Honor Guard in your deck that does essentially the same effect, but is on a creature. Or maybe vice versa. Maybe you thought, oh, well, I'm running humans. Takatli Honor Guard, for whatever reason, seems great. Uh, um, what? <laughs> spoiler, it's not. You have so many ETBs, it's bad. But if you decide that, oh, well, maybe I don't want this on a creature because it'll just die to a Fatal Push or a Bolt, Maybe I'll put in a Torpor Orb because I'm on Prison Whir, and that's a really great card that I can whir for. Is if I see, oh, well, your Thalia's Lieutenant's on the stack, 
I'm just going to whir for this Torpor Orb, or I'm going to have it in my sideboard to fetch with Karn the Great Creator, that seems like a pretty solid game plan to me. And as a side note, that really uh, kind of, that really pushes forward cards like War of Invention or Court of Calling as your ability at instant speed, no less, to go and fetch those utility creatures, those utility artifacts that really hate on certain strategies. You can cord and go get that Kotliana guard mm-hmm. in response to the Thalys Lieutenant. You can whir in response to that Thalys Lieutenant, get that Torpor Orb. Exactly. So you can find ways to incorporate cards into your strategy that, you know, worst case scenario, that's still an artifact that you could tap with Urza, the, the, the new one from Modern Horizons that we're going to see soon. Or worst case scenario, that Takatli Honor Guard's a 1-3 that can block their Goblin Guide pretty well per turn. So being able to find something that, even at its worst, is still capable of pushing forward your game plan is pretty great. And especially, like, <clears throat> with Karn the Great Creator, when you don't even have to have it in your main deck, and you essentially have four copies because you're running Karn and you can fetch it with those, that puts value on those cards way up high. So, you know, for example, if... If you're worried about finding a lot of Dredge or a lot of Phoenix and you're running the Karn the Great Creator in your deck, throw a, a Graft Digger's Cage in your sideboard. Be able to fetch that. You don't need to worry about drawing dead to it in the later game because it's not in your 60, but you will have access to it should you draw any of those Karns. The chances of you drawing it are essentially just the same as if you put four of them in your deck. And actually, with a new reprinting that is in Modern Horizons, we now have that for creatures as well with something like Eladomri's Call. You can put a one-off bullet in your deck, have a relatively low chance of drawing it, but still know that when you need it, you can get it. Yeah, exactly. And Eladomri's Call, it seems like, oh, well, I'm aggressive, I have these creatures, I want to go for it. Eladomri's Call is essentially whatever creature you need it to be. So... That's an excellent point, Brian. Is if we're looking to play against the the new deck, the deck in the format, we can lean into it. And, and we can say, I'm going to move my deck around what you're doing to make sure that I have the best chance against these decks. But maybe that's not the option we choose. You know, maybe we don't have the ability to change up our sideboard or purchase new cards to make sure that that we are good against those decks. Maybe we have to keep our head in the sand and hope for the best, which not a great option, but it's definitely an option. I mean, you could always take a hiatus from the game and hope for it all to blow over. Yeah. That's what I did during Eldrazi Winter. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) There is nothing that says that you have to play Magic the Gathering. And so, for example, I thought Standard was a lot of fun during the... Hour of Devastation through Battle for Zendikar era. I had so much fun in that set because I put together a red-black hellbent list that I had so much fun playing. And at our store championship for Hour of Devastation, I ended up beating Marcos in the top eight, who is on Cat Tribal. Like, we were having a lot of fun in this format. I was having fun. I assume you were. I was loving it. I kept playing a cat deck every week. It was awesome. Yeah, and like this, that, that store championship was the first time I had ever played standard, and I made it to third place in the store championship out of like twenty something people, 
which I was really happy about. I, I had so much fun playing it. And then when the madness mechanic rotated out of standard and some of our new cards came in, I had a lot less fun. That, that red-black deck basically disappeared. I want to say that out of the 75, I lost maybe 36 cards from the list. And I more or less have not returned to standard since. So yeah, I, I, I have taken my hiatus. Is there a chance I come back later? Definitely. I don't have any problem with standard. Right now there's shocklands in it, and those are kind of expensive. But I am on a hiatus from standard. So that's definitely an option that exists. And to be clear, you're not on a hiatus necessarily from Magic in general, just from Standard. You'll still play Limited, like you did on that YouTube video we put up a while back. You'll still play Modern, so you can definitely still jam Magic, just if the format has something that you just have no way to beat it if you can't play it, and then you can't play it, well, then you don't have to play that format. Find something else you like. Exactly. So you can choose to adapt yourself to, to match the deck, you can choose to ignore it and hope that it goes away. You can just simply quit and then be done and, and <laughs> take your ball and go home. Not but ideal, but you can. Another option that you have available to you is to try to build that deck to the best of your ability, which you know more or less may just be your budget version. Or So for example, with Standard... You know, I may really enjoy playing, and I might have this sweet idea for a, a deck that I think might be a lot of fun, but since the Shocklands are $10 a piece right now, or thereabout, and I know that I need 12 of them for my list, that $120 is quite a bit, and I don't know if I'm ready to invest that much in Standard at the moment. So maybe my best option is to try to budget the deck and see what options I have available to me. Okay, well... I can't use the shock lands. I still have check lands available in standard, which are quite a bit cheaper, so I can use some of those. Uh, I have guild gates, which are available. Maybe I could attempt to find a guild gate or a gate that a list that tries to thrive off of guild gates, which ding, 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 there is one. <laughs> or I can simply use basics and more or less hope for the best there. I found that when people tend to build budget options, lands are usually the first casualty, just because they're, they're the backbone of the deck. They're not as flashy. They're not as immediately important to your game plan. If I'm running a, a Phoenix list, then maybe the the difference between being able to cast the, the double blue spell on turn two or on turn three with a double red spell on turn two Maybe that's not the biggest roadblock for me. Maybe I'm fine with having to play that double blue spell off a turn because I need to get that second island down. But knowing full well that whole time that I could be playing more optimally if I had the whole list. Well, that becomes a lot easier, too, in formats with larger card pools. Mm -hmm. If you look at modern, the fetch lands are really expensive. <laughs> The Zendikar fetches, the enemy fetches are, you know, closing in on $100 a piece. That's kind of a lot. But then you can look at, say, the Pain Lands that got reprinted most recently in Magic Origins, and those are $2 a piece. I mean, and they do close enough <laughs> to the same thing most of the time. There's a lot of good, good enough budget options out there. 
Yes. I feel like when you look to budget a deck, good enough is basically the motto you're looking for. <laughs> and to be fair, some of these budget builds can be really good, even without having to worry about it. I mean, Brian just went 4-0 with a budget build that didn't have Arclight Phoenixes. He could have spent the money to upgrade it beforehand. Didn't need to. Still managed to get there. I went 3-1 with my Quest for Rulers Temple deck the other day. <laughs> that started as a $30 list. So, yeah, it it's definitely, if you're looking for budget options, I'd say it's better to look at options that start as budget as opposed to trying to budget a deck that's already pricey. For example, if you're trying to make a budget list of green-black rock, you are out of luck. There is no budget version of green-black rock that exists. You'd be running... <laughs> Heroes downfalls and tragic slips. You'd be running, you know, maybe the oh, the fast. What's the legless Bob? Uh, the enchantment lands. You'd be running. Gosh, I don't um, know what enchantment you're thinking of. Yeah, the the Phyrexian, Phyrexian uh, arena. I think draw a card. One life. one black black draw a card. Yes. Yeah, yeah Phyrexian, Phyrexian arena. arena. You can run Rune Raider. Like. Yep. You are not making that a competitive list that is budget. But if you instead look to do something like Kiln Fiend, mm -hmm. Kiln Fiend's a pretty solid budget option that exists in the format. Or there are creators like Saffron Olive who specifically do lists that are budget lists to try to keep players involved and excited in the formats. And realistically, a lot of those budgets really come down to the lands. You know, lands are always the first victim because they're so ubiquitous. So you can still focus on the game plan of the deck and just know that your mana may not be perfect and be fine. That's what Saffron Olive does a lot in his budget magic videos. Mm-hmm. And you can also look and say, okay, well, this blue-red Phoenix list is great, but it requires me to run, you know, Scalding Tarn and Steam Vents and Spire Bluff Canals, which are pretty pricey, and I'm not sure if I'm really ready for that. But if you look at the mono red list, you can do pretty fine with that running only basic mountains. And is it going to be the optimal list? Well, probably not. You know, you may lose some value in deck thinning with fetch lands or things like that. But overall, you're never going to have to worry about drawing the wrong color of land because your deck is one single color. So the options we've talked about so far are trying to tune your deck around what you expect or try to tune your deck around the the deck that you hope to beat or hope to play against talked about burying your head in the sand taking a hiatus and coming back when the problem is quote unquote fixed and we talked about building budget versions of the list that you may have an interest in playing but the last option that i see available if you don't have the ability to get the deck or if you don't have the ability to access it in any way shape or form or budget version it is you can lean into the fact that there is a best deck or best decks in the format and try to headhunt on the decks that prey on it so for example this is next is, level th this is yes this is risky as can be and if it pays off you're going to feel like you are living in 3019 yep. that you are the magic guru so what I'm talking about is if I expect my opponent to be on Phoenix, 
well, what types of things do I expect to be good against Phoenix? I expect my opponents to maybe have Rest in Peace, or Leyline of the Void, or Graph Digger's Cage, maybe spells that stop them from casting multiple cards a turn, or from drawing multiple cards a turn. My next level gaming is to try to acquire a deck that beats that one. And so what I'm hoping is to dodge Phoenix enough and get paired up against the decks that play against it to prey on that. Another example could be, if I expect a lot of Tron at the event, then maybe other players expecting Tron might show up with a, a taxes list. Ghost quartering Tron lands, getting them out of the game, keeping their opponent from searching the library, trying to delay them enough with taxing effects like Thalia or even Mind Sensor that they can't play their game as optimally. So I, as a next level guru, am going to pick a deck that does great against taxes and try to show up to the format to beat taxes and then just hope and pray to the Karn Father that everything <laughs> is okay. So you probably end up with a pretty wonky deck. Oh yes! <laughs> You end up with a very wonky deck, or a deck that's pretty decent at what you're doing, but still has some game against others. So, you know, if, if I expect Tron to be doing well, and Tron's trying to beat all the other decks, maybe I show up with something like Ponza, where it's not an absurd deck. It, it's not unquestionable to bring Ponza to a main event, or to bring it to something you're trying to compete in. I know it's going to have a decent matchup against Tron if I can just keep them off of lands. But it's not going to be, you know, 0% against the rest of the field. Is I may find some success nonetheless. And one of those jank lists can turn out to be just a really good deck. Uh, for example, look back at Amulet Titan. Before it became a big deck in Modern, a lot of people were playing it and people were looking down on it like, what is this jank bad deck that's using Ravnica Bounce Lands that I never wanted to play outside of Limited with Ravnica? Like, what is this deck even about? And at the time when it really was popularized, it showed up at, I believe it was Pro Tour Fate Reforged, uh, piloted by Justin Cohen. And that meta was very heavy on things like Jund, Burn, and Splinter Twin. So because that deck happened to have really good game against a lot of those decks, well, then it managed to do really well. And all of a sudden it became a deck in the format that people weren't looking at like, oh, what is this jank anymore? It was, oh, no, this is Amulet Titan. Something needs to get banned out of this. It's too good. Which is, I mean, specifically thinking, my first SCG Open that I ever worked as staff on was the SCG Cincinnati that Collins Mullins took humans to an undefeated win. Out of nowhere. And I remember, I remember that no one had ever really put humans in a, a viable place. Like, sure, five-color humans had always been an idea. Like, there's always going to be humans in all sorts of colors and magic. It's only going to continue forward from here. And I, I remember that in the 5-0 bracket at one point, there were both humans and slivers present. In the same tournament. <laughs> and With they both ended mandibles. up in the feature match area. And I remember Marcos and myself and Patrick um, were all just so giddy over the fact that humans was 5-0, 6-0, 7-0. 
because we thought it was hilarious. They were bringing in new cards at the time, like Kite Sail Freebooter, this random uncommon from Ixalan that why did it matter? It's a one-two flyer and absolutely wrecking people. Went all the way, made day two undefeated, uh, ended up conceding a match to an opponent or who was a friend to ensure mm-hmm. that their friend got into top eight and then proceeded to go on from there, had a turn two win in the finals against Storm <laughs> after meddling mage naming Grape Shot and absolutely dominated that tournament. Yep. And all of a sudden, this meme of a deck, just in one day, went to being one of the most breakout decks of the format that is still present and successful a year and a half later. Magic is a crazy game. Yeah, and is. is only made better by people who just brew and brew and keep trying until they succeed. And I guarantee you there's decks in Modern right now that nobody knows is there yet, but somebody is brewing it quietly, like... That Grixis War Prison deck that's been going around lately, that we talked about as a group last year, just in our Facebook chat, and I started randomly playing it, and it actually seemed really good. And now it's like, I looked at the MTG Goldfish results recently, and it just 5-0'd, or not 5-0'd, it just won the Modern Challenge this weekend, just because. Yeah. So we've put a lot of context here in Modern Format, which is... As we've mentioned before, definitely our favorite to play in a competitive environment and the one we see the most when we go out. But with the absolute smashing success of Arena, which we also all enjoy playing, you also have to consider new questions as far as deck creation goes. Because the system for acquiring things like rares or wild cards is so much different in the arena environment as opposed to the paper or or magic online environment that it does create an entirely new system marcos i'd say you have the most experience on arena from the rest of us what are your thoughts on this yeah i've been doing a lot of grinding on arena um (laughs) and then i think i mentioned this on our last episode as well but that's the primary way that i can play magic as much as i want to nowadays because getting my way to an event at a local store is just not something that's feasible with my schedule. So I play a lot on Arena. And in doing that, I've discovered a couple of things. Uh, First off, be very selective with your wild cards as you're going through uh, building your decks. And when it comes to the concept of playing the best deck on Arena, if your goal is to be competitive, get up to Mythic, and qualify for some of these Mythic Qualifier weekends, and, you know, really bring yourself up there into the Mythic rankings, you have to play the best deck. Either play the best deck, or find that one random deck that is going to beat all the best decks, because you just have to. Uh, There isn't really a lot of flexibility there. You have to find something that will get game against that, because the latter is prevalent. There are people pouring money into arena right now to literally build whatever tier deck they want and if you're not able to compete against it you're not going to find a lot of success on the ladder so you may end up having a split time between playing events that give you a lot of extra booster packs and extra gems and extra coins to be able to turn into booster packs to open wild cards to be able to get what you want if you don't want to be pouring money into the uh into the program 
But with oh. Arena, there's a very specific challenge of that best deck is going to be on the ladder. You are going to have to play it. So you had better have a very good way to approach playing that deck or play the deck yourself. Yeah, I definitely tend to grind myself on the open lobby just to make sure I hit my daily challenges or my daily win limits so that I can give myself the best chance at getting those extra packs and those extra cards so that when I'm ready to actually play on the ranked ladders, I have the best deck that I possibly can to be able to actually compete. Because I'm not the type of person that sinks money into Arena. If I had more money, I might be. But as it stands, I don't have that ability to just put forth hundreds of dollars into the system to make sure I get each of my shock lands, each of the rares I need. I'm trying to do my best with what I have. So in the arena case, I'm definitely taking that budget route is I can't afford the experimental frenzy wild cards and the goblin chain whirlers. So which one do I deem is the more important card for that deck? Is it better to grab all the frenzies that I need to make sure that I can keep spewing in the late game? Is it better to get the chain whirlers I need to try to clear up board stalls and get in with, you know, my my very scant creatures like the Vyoshino Pyromancers? Or is it better to try to do a mix of the two and fill in those three mana and four mana spots respectively with other cards that maybe aren't as great in the format, but can still help me to achieve more success so that I can do better and get those cards I need? There's also a very good article series, which we will also link to in the show notes, uh, that MTG Goldfish put out a little while ago about what the best way to optimize collecting an entire set on Magic Arena, uh, what the best strategy is to do that. Because I have collected quite a lot on Arena, and I will say it is very nice to be able to turn a random booster pack into 20 gems. That just lets you get into more drafts, which lets you get more cards, which lets you play more ranked competitive. So getting those gems and maximizing how much you're doing there is huge. Uh, we'll link to that article in the show notes. So there was also a Twitch channel uh, and uh, I believe daily or yeah, I believe it's daily stream with Ryan Spain, one of the original co-hosts of Limited Resources called Going Optimal on Twitch, where his whole focus is just never putting more than a few dollars into Arena and still being able to get in at least a competitive draft every day or every other day and get the most out of the economy in Arena. So definitely something to check out too. Well, we will definitely have to give that a look and maybe put those tips to use on one of our streams here in the future. So it's definitely important to find success. I'm sure that you would burn out rather fast on Arena if you're just constantly getting crushed and crushed and crushed. I don't know how much you two spend time doing that on Arena. Unfortunately, it's happening to me a little bit more than I'd like. And so <laughs> I'm trying to make sure that the deck that I'm playing can do pretty well in the field. And, and this isn't for Arena only. This extends to each of the other formats is... I might have the most fun playing a certain style of deck, but as I'm trying to find success and as I'm trying to grind up or to achieve those higher ranks, the diamond, the platinum, the the mythic, not in that order, of course, um, I need to make sure that the deck I'm using is optimal against the crowd. And in some cases, 
I have to make the decision of, well, this deck has a, you know, a 75% chance against these three archetypes, which I expect to see in this area of the queue or in this tournament or competition. But I know it also has a 25% matchup against these three decks, which I also expect to see. And you have to take into account, well, is it better that I optimize my deck to be able to min-max and just crush the ones that I can win and then just accept my losses that I know I can't? Or should I try to work my deck to be more even against the whole field so that I find some success among all the crowds and that at the end of the day, it's going to come down to what I can draw, what my opponent draws, and just how perfectly I can try to play. Well, I guess that really all comes down to how many percentage points are you gaining or losing by trying to either fix your bad matchups or increase your good matchups. If you can go from 75% to 100%, you're winning every game mm -hmm. by including three cards, but your worst matchups go from 25 down to 20. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, you take that every time. <laughs> <laughs> Worth it. In formats with sideboards, this is where you're most prevalently going to find this question, is you only have 15 spots in your sideboard, but in a format like Modern, there are so many different decks that you can find. We've obviously talked about a few already, but the way that I optimize my deck to beat Is It Phoenix is significantly different than the way I optimize my deck to beat Tron, which is completely different from the way I optimize my deck to try to beat Gristlebrand, or to try to beat Humans, or Spirits or Mill, or Ad Nauseam. There are so many different decks that I have to work around that if I wanted to give one spot to each of the different decks I expect to play, I would still be running out of spots. So when you're determining your sideboard cards, it's important to figure out which cards help you to get into a solid matchup win percentage versus which help you to scrape to even. And by that I mean is... If I'm 50% against a certain deck, and this sideboard card is going to help me to be 70% against that deck, that is going to be better than a sideboard card that puts me at 60% against another deck that I expect to play. We can also consider cards that are more flexible. Mm -hmm. uh, look at a card like uh, Disdainful Stroke. Fantastic in against Tron, but I also bring it in versus Scapeshift. Mm -hmm. I brought it in against Infect sometimes because it has become immense. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, for that same exact reason, I run Gaddock Teague in my board. Uh, <laughs> great against Tron, great against Scapeshift, great against Cryptic Command and Terminus. Gaddock Teague can do quite a lot of things. So it's important is, okay, well, clearly I'd want the card that puts me at 70% instead of the card that puts me at 60%. But what if that card that puts me at 60% can do that with multiple different matchups. So for example, is if I have a card that can put me at 70% against Mill. You know, for whatever reason, I have this card that is really good against Mill, and that's the only one it's good against. And it basically gets me to like 100%. Well, it's pretty cool, but how likely am I to see Mill versus if I use those same spots to bring in something like a Gaddock Teague or a Disdainful Stroke? that I know is going to have success for me in multiple different matchups. You could totally do Leyline, though. Yes! Leyline would totally kill Mill and a bunch of other stuff. Yep, and so there's a big reason why there's a lot of cards that are 
there's so many cards that can do a lot of different things. So your Ley Line of Sanctities, they do protect you against Mill. They also protect you against Burn, Discard from things like Thoughtseize or Inquisition of Kozilek. They protect you from, you know, Cryptic Command, tap your team. Or no, sorry, not Cryptic Command, tap your team. They protect you in so many different senses that that flexible card is really important to have. Whereas Jace, Wielder of Mysteries, is not. <laughs> yes. Yes. Even if I could run a triple blue. Yeah. If you, you could win 100% of your mill matches there, not worth it. Well, especially since that's triple blue and you're playing Naya. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be really difficult. You run like eight Manamorphoses, right? Sure. Yeah, put it on, a, <laughs> put it on an Isochrome Scepter. All right. Oh, damn. Panharmonicon. <laughs> Panharmonicon cast Isochron Scepter. Double trigger both mana morphos. Hey. Got it. Nailed it. <laughs> Don't worry, fam. We'll get there. I mean, that's only about 24 sideboard slots, right? <laughs> For this one, one deck that's 0.5% of the meta on a good day. And, and for you people trying to catch me out there, yes, that does work. If you can imprint two things with Isochron Scepter, whenever you activate it, you get to cast both. So in that case, yes, it would allow me to cast Jace. <laughs> so definitely looking at the viability of your deck against the field makes that important. And, you know, as much as I want to talk about how much this puts me at, at 55% against certain decks, or 65 or 75 how big Rest in Peace is against Mill or, or against, sorry, Dredge, or against Phoenix, how important I think Leyline of Sanctity is against Burn or against Mill. It's also important to take a second and think about where my deck starts at. If, if oh, I'm yeah. bringing a deck that starts at 40% against the field to the tournament in the hopes that maybe my sideboard brings me up 20 match points, which still only puts me at 60, it's very important to consider whether or not that deck is is the viable deck for this tournament. And obviously we've already talked about, do you have access to a, a better deck? Or do you have access to a deck that's going to be better against the field? Are you able to borrow cards from your friends to help you bring that 40 to a 50? But then also just taking that time to look and say, I have so much fun playing my Naya Blitz deck, but if I'm going to a real tournament, a, a competitive tournament, one where I'm putting in money for an entry fee because i am hoping to earn some some money back chances are i'm not taking that Naya list because i know it's not the most competitive it's fun and i think i definitely bring quite a few advantage points to the matchup because of my familiarity with it but i would probably be pulling a reed duke and showing up with a mono blue tempo yep so does anyone have any final thoughts for the best deck in the format? How to handle it, how to treat it, whether or not it's worth it, whether or not it's even important to designate a best deck or best decks. I mean, picking up a brand new deck, especially in a new archetype, that's hard. You know, I'm, I'm going to give Phoenix a try, but that's pretty close to the types of decks I already play. If I went to something like uh, maybe traditional affinity, uh, just an all-out vomit your entire hand, swing with, you know, 12 creatures on turn two type of deck, that is completely outside of my comfort zone, and I am just going to bomb that. Yeah, I mean, definitely considering 
how much of a pivot you would have to make is is big and in your case that's an excellent example is you know sure it might be easier for you to transition to a, a phoenix deck because you're already a thing in the ice deck but if you show up with amulet titan it might be a much different story yeah you'll find you end up losing quite a few percentage points just based off of realizing certain lines after you should have done them with any new deck you, there's going to be that learning curve where you're not optimizing you're not doing the right line and you're going to throw away percentage points there the question is though is that deck like a 80 percent deck like eldrazi was during eldrazi winter where even if you're not running it at full capacity you're still so much more inherently powerful than everything else in the format that you should still be playing the deck anyway or is it more of like well with amulet i can get myself a good 60 percent win rate at my best which is nothing to scoff at for sure but if you're not running at your best that becomes a lot worse yeah, definitely. When you look at what deck you're hoping to bring, it's important to consider a lot of different factors beyond just whether or not the deck can put up results, but whether or not you can put up results. Because like you mentioned, Marcos, it, piloting the deck is a big portion of what we're doing here. And if you're 60% with Amulet Titan, which is a 70% a deck, well, it's better than you going... 40% with a KCI that's so good it's banned. <laughs> so anyways, with that, the, the last thing I will put out is that to a certain extent, you can metagame. What I mean is on a local level, it's not absurd to think about the different decks you'll see. Is If I go to FNM every week and I can more or less memorize what the people there are bringing, then I have a general idea of the field that I'm looking at. And at some places, this is going to be a lot easier than at others. If the store I go to has the same eight people every single week that show up with the same eight decks every single week, chances are I can dedicate more than two spots per deck in my sideboard to specifically try to target those decks. And if two of them are on burn, great. I can put four Leyline of Sanctities in and call it a day. But when you're at a, a larger store, something like Hot Sauce Games here in Fort Wayne with... 50, 60 people at FNM, when you're showing up to a Mythic Championship qualifier with 200 people, when you're showing up to Grand Prix Detroit with probably 1,000, 1,100 people, that idea of metagaming becomes significantly harder. And sure, you know what you can expect, but at the end of the day, that's anyone's guess, is what you are going to be paired up against. And especially in rounds one and two, oh man... <laughs> Who knows so what you're going to be paired up against? Because rounds one and two, if you are a quality player who is going to put up quality results, round one and two is going to be the most frustrating time for you as a player. <laughs> because that's where you're going to find the things like Quest for Ula's Temple and <laughs> Mardu Burn because they couldn't afford the rest of the burn cards but wanted to play a burn deck and Bump in the Night is basically Bolt, right? Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, exactly. So definitely understanding the event that you're preparing for is going to be able to help you in the long run to understand what's happening. And there are sites like MTG Goldfish, which you can go to, and you can see a general breakdown of the formats as they currently stand. So if you know that you're going to a standard tournament this weekend, maybe just go over and hop on MTG Goldfish, see what the standard meta looks right, like right now, 
and use that to be able to prepare your sideboard if you expect the tournament to be pretty equivalent to that meta. Right, and most decks have what they call flex slots, where mm-hmm. you can change out you know, certain spells kind of to tailor towards your meta. Right now, for example, I'm running a couple Electrolyze in the main board because I expect to see a lot of Noble Hierarchs and uh, it'll hit Thalia as well or like Mana Elves or whatever. But if I don't expect a whole lot of those One Toughness creatures, it comes out and depending on what the anticipated meta is, something better goes in. Maybe Dispels. I don't know. Yeah, I have a lot of fun messing with my sideboard. And pretty much one of my favorite things at FNM is when I cast one of my sideboard spells, and they look at me and go, Really? Gruel Charm? Okay, (laughs) you clearly want this more. Yeah, I do a very similar thing with Amulet. Uh, Whenever I'm looking at the deck, I see my Amulet deck as about a 90-95 card deck overall, and I'm just bringing the best 75 to any given event, because... Sometimes I want to bring in Leyline of the Void. Sometimes I want to bring in Grafdigger's Cage. Sometimes I don't want any of that, and I just concede to losing any kind of dredge matchup I play against, and it all just depends. So, I guess to wrap things up, what we're trying to say is, do your best. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to kind of sum up everything we're talking about today, there's a few points we want to get through. First off is, when at all possible it's probably in your benefit to play the best deck. Of course, keeping in mind how well you can pilot it, how familiar you are with it, how much time you have to prepare with it, and things like that. Uh, Then if you're not in the position to be able to do that, well, then don't worry about not playing the best deck. Just play your deck and play it the best you can because you'll get the most out of that. Uh, But I think we ultimately do want to stress you should always be aware of what the best deck is because... You have to be able to prepare for it. You have to know what to do if you're going to play against that best deck because if there is an established best deck, you're going to see it at least once during the event. And then, of course, lean into it and try to find something that can beat that best deck. If you can make the deck that you're currently playing beat that best deck, great. If you can't, well, maybe consider something that can snipe it down and put yourself in a better position overall. Perfect. So for today's weekly segment of the week, trademark, I will go ahead and introduce myself. Hi, it's Dalton Grimes. And what I want to talk to you about today is my amazing content, which you can find on Facebook at MTG Team CE. CE is in collective effort, of course. This week, I have written and published an article on our Facebook page regarding my most favorite of adventures, and that is my quest for Ula's Temple. For those listeners of our podcast, you may have heard that I took quest for Ula's Temple to a 3-1 finish at our FNM, getting two different turn two kills with the deck, and as a nice little aside, the deck runs a total of 10 lands, The average converted mana cost of non-land cards in the deck is 4.7, and the average converted mana cost of non-one drops in the deck is 6.79. So, (laughs) needless to say, it's rather absurd, and I would like to share that absurdity with you. So if you find us on Facebook at MTGTeamCE, you will see that article in all of its glory, 
And all I require is a few simple likes, or comments, or shares, and with your support, Marcos and I will stream Quest for Ula's Temple for all of you lovely denizens, so that you can truly understand Ula's blessing. Who is Ula, you ask? I recommend you read the article. <laughs> I like the reference there, the denizens. Thank you. That was yeah. very good, actually. Was it Ravnikin denizens? Was it denizen of the deep? Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. So to clarify a little further there, you can search for our uh, community page on Facebook. You can either search Team Collective Effort, or you can go to facebook.com slash mtgteamce, like you can find us on all other social media. Yeah, so find us on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, and Anchor at mtgteamce. You can find us on YouTube at Collective Effort MTG. We will be posting some of our streams and other content there. And then if you ever have any questions, comments, deck lists, or any other ways that you want to reach out to us, should you decide that social media is not your thing and you'd prefer email, you can message us at teamcollectiveeffort at gmail.com. Until next time, bye. <laughs> 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 okay, bye. Oh, okay, bye-bye. Bye. Actually, pause here real quick. Is this yeah. the point that we're trying to make? <laughs> <laughs> what? Why not? So, Marcos, why don't you go ahead and wrap this all up for us? Because <laughs> <laughs> Dalton can't. <laughs> I got Danny to vetoed. I'm already planning on that. I haven't written the article yet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now oh. you have a clock. Marcos, Spanish ¿Sí? stream. Let's hit sí. it. Sí, listo. Lo haremos. Pero como mientras que tú estás haciendo... I don't know how to say stream in Spanish. <laughs> Yo no sé también, pero... Ni yo tampoco. Tenemos que hablar con alguien. alguien Porque alguien. creo que ese puede ser un buen idea. Puede ser. Pero más tarde. Pero yo no sé en inglés también. <laughs> Está bien, mejor. Somos pequeños. <laughs> Perhaps subtitled men. Yeah. Con subtítulos. Sí. You can't say that word on the internet. <laughs> and any deck list can be submitted to us via email. Any strongly worded letters can be sent to us via courier pigeon. Perfect. You will not be receiving the pigeon back.